Our ushers are bringing around uh, note sheets and pencils, and if you need a Bible, make sure you raise your hand so they can bring a Bible to your seat. We want you all to be properly equipped for being in the Word together today. Uh, that last song that we sang is quite an old song, and I think it is a great encouragement to sing songs that have been sung by saints for hundreds of years. I think there's something beautiful about that, to see that the testimony that they had in Christ is the same testimony that we have in Christ and that there is a continuity to the gospel that the church will never be defeated, that God's church may take different forms in different places, but God is saving his people and he will continue to save his people until the last one who is chosen is saved. And so we're grateful to be able to sing songs that have a heritage to them and that look back through time and remind us that there are others who have walked the road before us, that we can learn from them, that we can rejoice in them, and that we can look at the promise of God that's been fulfilled in them, that those who have gone home to glory are rejoicing with the Savior even today and awaiting their new bodies. So uh, sometimes we sing new songs, sometimes we sing old songs, but we always want to sing songs that testify to the things God has shown us in His Word. Before I forget, there is one more announcement that we did want to make. And uh, I'm grateful, so very grateful for the work of the men and women who supply our tech support in the sound booth. And if you have ever even considered helping out in some way, you haven't found a place to really serve at our church yet, and, and you might be willing to just in a few brief minutes learn some simple keystrokes, we could really use your help up in the sound booth. Uh, the, the guys that do that job have been so very supportive of the preaching ministry and the singing ministry at this church, and they could use some extra help. They're trying to get a rotation going so that you'd only have to serve once every three weeks, and then you could be just doing your normal thing on a Sunday morning the other times. Uh, but we do have uh, some families in the sound booth that have children, and they would really look forward to sitting with their kids in worship service and helping them to uh, integrate into the worship that we're doing. So to give them a break from time to time would really be fantastic. So if you're not serving the Lord and that's something that you think you might be able to do or learn to do, it's not overly technical. Um, but if you are interested, please talk to myself or you can talk to David or Quinn uh, Dovey. Um, they would love to give you more information about that so that the, uh, the ministries of our church can be fully staffed and we can have the, the, the volunteer um, resources that we need. So... Please be praying about that. Uh, this series in Hosea that we've been going through for the last few months is entitled Hosea, The Faithfulness of God. And we need to remember that because as we go through this last section, which makes up really the bulk of the book, we're going to hear a lot about the failures in faithfulness of Israel. And, and we want to remember that this book is really not about just heaping condemnation on Israel and, and their shortcomings. But really what we need to see is the faithfulness of God that strives with his people through every failure of those whom he has called to himself. And against the backdrop of our failures, against the backdrop of Israel's lack of faith, the faithfulness of Yahweh shines all the more brightly. It is not as though faithfulness is, is only a problem among those who lived in the time of the Old Covenant. We see it among the New Covenant people from time to time as well, this struggle to remain faithful to the God who saves. We, we see it in the New Testament, for instance, in the ministry of Paul, when he, he, ha, he has to cite again and again people who were serving alongside him, but then for various reasons, they got caught up with love of the world like, like Demas, and they abandoned the ministry. Or out of fear, John Mark abandoned the first mission's effort. Later, the Lord redeems him and brings him back. Uh, Phagellus and Hermogenes in 1 Timothy 1 are cited as those who, who fell away in the mission in Asia. So there are many brothers and sisters who tried to be faithful to the Lord and for various reasons we, we have records of them not being able to withstand the difficulties of walking in Christ. We, we've read before in Galatians about how there are many in the church in that area who are thinking about abandoning the orthodox gospel that saves Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 7 says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So there was a constant battle for orthodoxy, even in the earliest iterations of the church, that the apostles and the elders had to fight to keep false teaching out of the church so that the people of God would remain faithful to their calling. The letter to the Hebrews ministers to a community of Jewish Christians 
who were tempted to abandon their confession that Jesus is Messiah because of the persecutions that were mounting up against them. It was becoming too difficult for them to continue to proclaim the name of Christ in light of all of the heat that was being brought against them, particularly by Jewish people who did not believe that Jesus was the true Messiah. And so that letter is written to encourage them to hold fast to the faith and to not become faithless people. The letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation touch on faithfulness and faithlessness. Each letter urged the church uh, where it was written to to remain steadfast in their commitment to serving God and to following Him. Two of the seven churches are described in such a way that their faith in the Savior was noted as being lacking. The church in Sardis was not being faithful to the charge that God had given to them. They were not doing the work assigned to them as a church. And in Laodicea, we read of a church that had grown apathetic and lukewarm towards holiness. In addition, the church in Ephesus, while there was still a semblance of faith in them, was beginning to forget the first love that won them to Christ in the beginning. They were in danger of falling into similar patterns of unfaithfulness if they lost, lost track of the Savior who had made them new. By these New Testament examples, we can see that when our faith in God wanes, it can have a grave impact on many important aspects of our lives. Going back to that Hebrews letter I mentioned a minute ago in chapter 11, verse 6, it says, And without faith it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. And as we finish out the fourth chapter of Hosea this morning, we're going to get a picture of how faithlessness has specifically impacted one important aspect of life in the northern kingdom. We're going to see how faithlessness has undermined their ability to worship their God. It has affected the offering of, of faith that they are there to give to their God. And so we are in Hosea chapter 4. And if you've got your Bibles open, we're going to read verses 12 through 19. And that is what we are going to study this morning together. I begin the reading of God's word in verse 12. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of mountains and burn offerings on the hills, under oak, poplar, and terebinth, because their shade is good. And therefore your daughters play the harlot, and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes, and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to Beth-Avon, and swear not, as the Lord lives, like a stubborn heifer. Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time in his word today. God, we are grateful for you. And we know that apart from your amazing grace, revealing truth, we would be lost in these words. We wouldn't know what to make of them. But I do pray, Lord God, that you would use this pulpit as a place where clarity is preached from your word today and where your people are equipped to understand and to live in obedience to what you have called. Thank you supremely for Christ. All of our faithfulness rests on him supplying it to us. And so we come again and ask that you would give us faith to believe and to obey these words today. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. A lack of faithfulness on the part of the Israelites has led to a number of corruptions in the acts of worship that they are engaged in. First, we see the object of their worship is wrong. Verse 12, My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles, for a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. As we see here, Yahweh punctuates the beginning of this idea by declaring that the Israelites in the north were clearly his people. My people inquire of a piece of wood. What makes it all that more shocking that they have wa walked away from him in an adulterous way. 
it amplifies their unfaithful behavior towards him. They have been brought near to the one true God by covenant. God has promised them great and wonderful things so long as they obey his commands and offer him the worship that he deserves. Part of the blessing of the covenant relationship that God has built with them is a promise for fellowship, access to him, and the right to seek his wisdom and guidance. Now, as New Testament saints, we have that access on a different level, don't we? We don't just believe that there is a holiest of holies, a place within a temple where the Spirit of God dwells and that we could come near to it. Those who are called in Christ have the Spirit of God dwelling with us now. So the presence of God goes with us wherever we go. We are the temple now. We are properly the place where God dwells. What a humbling and amazing thing to consider and to think about. And, and, and so as God's people, there should be a gratefulness to, uh, to this idea that he wants to be near to us. Even though they didn't have the spirit in the same way that we do today, those saints had the presence of God given to them in a way that they should have rejoiced in. They had been drawn near to the Lord God in a fellowship relationship. And yet when things get difficult, when they are struggling, and when there is fear on their minds and hearts, they're inquiring, not of the God who has said, come and be near to me, and I will give you what you need. Instead, they are inquiring of a piece of wood. Rather than resting their faith and hope upon the God or the, upon the hands that have made man, they are foolishly appealing to the power and the guidance of the false gods that were made by the hands of men. We read here that their walking staff gives them oracles. They had adapted pagan rituals in, in the pattern of others who worshiped false gods, asking for direction, either from idols directly or from the false prophets who brandished these staffs that had carved images of idols upon them. They sought their counsel instead of going back to the scripture that God had given to them, which was a guide and a direction to them. God had clearly prohibited these superstitious practices of divination. We read about it in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Verses 10 through 12, it says, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, which was a pagan practice. There should be no one among you who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. These were the practices of the Canaanites whose land God had given to them as a promise and as an inheritance. The Israelites were supposed to drive the Canaanites out of the land and to show them that their false gods were, were, were not real gods, that they, they were an insult to the true God. And yet they had not fulfilled that plan. They had not fully obeyed the Lord and they had allowed those systems of religion to stay around. And they had begun to corrupt the true worship of Yahweh. They had adopted these practices and they had integrated them into true Jewish worship. And so you have this sense of syncretism now where it's a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And so there's a right jealousy that God expresses as his people turn their hopes to foreign gods. When his people turn their hopes towards false deities and when they borrow practices from cultic worship rituals of the pagan nations. Isaiah 42.8, God declares, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. So the fact that these brothers and sisters in the north were worshiping these pieces of wood was despicable to God. His jealousy is akin to that felt by a man whose wife has committed adultery against him. But even worse so, this is not just an issue of she belongs to me and so no one else has rights to her. Marriage in a Christian sense from, from biblical instruction is a man and a woman being joined together. So women, when, when the women of Israel were joining themselves to, to uh, men that were not their husbands, they were doing damage to themselves, they were doing damage to the covenant relationship that they had their husbands, and they were doing damage to their husbands as well as their hearts were injured by this unfaithfulness. And so too were the men creating problems within Israel by visiting harlots and, and conducting themselves that were despicable in the eyes of God. And so this harlotry has even affected the, the worship of Yahweh. They are now cheating on God with Molech and with Baal and with Ashtaroth. 
So the object of their worship is completely wrong. They should be worshiping Yahweh and they're worshiping created things instead. They're worshiping gods that they have made up from their imagination. Secondly, the place of their worship is wrong. God had provided for them a special location for proper worship. Again, that's different for us. We don't have a temple now that we all run to. We, we are the temple of God. But in those days, the presence of God was in Jerusalem for the people who worshiped him. Jerusalem was the city of King David. It was a place of special importance. And at that temple, there was regulated offerings and sacrifices made on behalf of the people of the nation of Israel. That temple was built by holy hands, by the instruction of God to Solomon, the son of David. And it was the only place where the Israelites were allowed to offer sacrifices and, um, and supplication for their sins. There's a prescription that God has written for the people into his covenant. Worship me and do it exactly like this. And rather than heed that command, these Israelites in the north were acting as though they had the freedom to offer sacrifices and praise to God in any manner they so choose. Verse 13, they sacrifice on the tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak and poplar and terebinth because their shade is good. So there has been this struggle within Israel where they're not doing the things they're supposed to do and they're not doing them where they're supposed to do it. Now you might ask, why is God so picky about these things? They're trying to offer something to Yahweh. Why is it important for them to offer that in Jerusalem? Why can't they offer it on these hilltops? Why isn't it just as acceptable to God for them to worship in these outdoor places underneath the shade of these trees? Well, the answer to that is that the very purpose of why we offer praise and worship to God is because He is worthy of it. And we are acknowledging in our worship to God that He is sovereignly in control. We are declaring that yes, He alone is creator. That yes, He alone is king. We are not God. He is God. He made us, and so we owe Him every respect and gratitude. And yes, every obedience is owed to Him as well, for He is the one who rules from the throne of heaven. If this God who is in control and who deserves honor and praise has declared that all of my subjects will show honor to me in this specific way, then it is an insult of the highest order to then not only refuse to worship him in that way, but then to offer something different than the way that he has told us to worship and think that's acceptable to him. It is rebellion cloaked in the disguise of faithfulness. That's a dangerous thing, isn't it? When people say, I am doing these good things in the name of God, but they're not the things that God has told them to do. And they're not the things that God has said are holy. Then this is a deception to the world around them. So they're worshiping the wrong object. They're worshiping the wrong object in the wrong places. And then thirdly, their understanding of God's word is all wrong as well. The lack of knowledge brought on by lazy and deceptive teachers has certainly impacted the way that the people were worshiping Yahweh in the northern kingdom. When word suffers, sacrament suffers as well. For sacrament is based upon word. Remember, we still have in mind here the laments of verse 6 of this same chapter where Hosea said, My people are destroyed by lack of what? Knowledge, right? Proper knowledge of God offers us a defense against deception. It offers us a defense against moral corruption. The better we know the God that we trust, the better we will trust Him, and the more accurately we can worship Him as His people. In our Sunday evening uh, service last week, we studied the 93rd question of the Baptist Catechism. The Baptist Catechism is simply a tool that we've been using to help our people grow in discipleship, and uh, all 93 of those questions so far have been uh, answered and preached through our Sunday evening services. And you can go back and listen to those on podcast if you've missed those. But last week we asked question 93, which is, what are the outward means by which Christ communicates to us, his people, the benefits of redemption? In other words, what are the normal ways that God makes sure his people are provided with a consistent and regular supply of his grace so that they're ready and able to live their lives by faith in a faithful way. Now, we acknowledged on Sunday last week 
that God can use any number of ways to show us grace and strengthen our trust in Him. And sometimes His methods are extraordinary. Sometimes His deliverance of grace is unconventional. I think of an example in Acts chapter 5. The apostles are, are boldly preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in the temple courtyards. This is just days after their Savior has been crucified and they're preaching Him. The high priests are enraged by this because they just worked hard to put Jesus to death. And now the message of Jesus seems alive and well, as alive as it has ever been. And so they arrest these apostles. They throw them into jail. They tell them that it is now illegal to preach the message that they've been preaching, and they forbid them to do it. That night, the angel of the Lord appeared to those men who are imprisoned for preaching the truth, and the angel just lets them free. He opens the doors to their cell. He instructs them to come out of the prison. And then he tells them to do the unthinkable. He says, don't run and hide. Don't go somewhere else and preach the gospel. Go right back into the courtyards where you're arrested and continue preaching the word of God. Preach Jesus Christ, him crucified, him resurrected. Preach the gospel of salvation. And they did that faithfully. And when the high priest went to collect the apostles from their cells the next morning and take them to trial, the guards were there. The cell doors were locked, but the apostles were gone. And it didn't take long for someone to report back to them that these very men who had been imprisoned for preaching the gospel were preaching the gospel again. And so the guards apprehended them once more. They brought the apostles before the council again, and they were threatened and told not to preach, to which they responded, we must obey God rather than men. And the high priest had these faithful men beaten, and then released with stern warnings. And Acts 5, 41 through 42 records how they responded. Listen to this, church. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This is an interesting situation because God has used in the lives of those apostles a very unusual and extraordinary way to fill them with his grace. The high priests thought they were going to effectively shut down the Christians, but God used this situation in an extraordinary way to fill them with more faith and more boldness and more grace. And God can do that. God can use your sickness or your lost job. God can use a broken relationship to drive you nearer to him and to, to supply grace to you. But there is, those are not the normal ways that God communicates his grace to us. There are normal ways by which we learn and grow and are filled. So the answer to the question presented in the 93rd Catechism question last week was this. The outward and ordinary means by which Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances or sacraments especially the word, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and prayer, all of which are means made effectual to the elect for salvation. So these are the ordinary means of grace, the word, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and prayer. These four things are the channels by which we grow in faith. They are the everyday ways that we come to the Lord God and experience His goodness. Each of these, whether it's baptism, communion, prayer, each of these is founded on the teaching and the preaching of God's holy word, which is essential for us if we want to know God. If you want to know who God is, listen to what God has said about who he is. He's told us how he intends to save us. He has told us how we are expected to carry out our faith now that we're saved. And so you take the word out of the equation if you eliminate the scripture or you ignore it or neglect it, and the other ordinary means of grace would suffer greatly. If we were not a church that was built on the foundation of the word of God, then I, I would expect for us to baptize the wrong people, people who don't have real faith in Jesus. I would expect to see communion taken in ways that were not uphold, or uplifting to the Lord God. I would expect us to start looking at prayer in the wrong ways as some sort of, of, of a leveraged tool that we use to get our way from God instead of uh, having fellowship with him and experiencing the goodness of his gifts in his fellowship. When word suffers, sacrament suffers as well. And that's exactly what's happening in the northern kingdom. 
They have ignored the word of God. They have taken their eyes off of what God has revealed about himself. And because of that, their worship is now falling apart. The whole of the northern kingdom is implemented in the disobedience that Hosea condemns here. But the influential role that the priests played means that no one is chastised with as much force as they are. The oracles of God have been entrusted to these priests. They have the word and they've been given the special responsibility to minister that word to the people, to help them know what God has made known of himself and they have utterly neglected that responsibility. A similar charge is given to the elders in the New Testament, right? Isn't it the responsibility of the New Testament elder to preach the full counsel of God's word? We read it in 1 Timothy 4.16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And that's why we typically choose a book of the Bible and we just preach verse by verse through the word. So we're not just grabbing the things that we like and ignoring the things that don't match what we are attracted to. The whole counsel of God's word is good for us. So to be entrusted with teaching the word of God, is, it's a great privilege. I counted it one of the greatest gifts of my life, but it is also a very heavy responsibility for those who are called to the task. Now to understand, under, to understand how much these corrupt and deceptive priests deserve the blame for what is going on, we need to take some time to carefully understand what Hosea is saying in verse 14 because it's a little confusing. And to do that, we're going to have to think historically about the ways that God has commissioned the priests to serve. So let's look again at verse 14 in our passage this morning. Hosea writes, I will not punish your daughters for when they play the whore, nor your brides, notice that word, when they commit adultery. Now stop there for just a second. The Hebrew word for brides there can be translated two ways. And there's an exact split in the amount of ways it's translated as brides or the, or the amount of times it's used as daughters-in-law. And I believe that the ESV actually doesn't get this right here in this passage, and I'll explain why for just a minute. So when we look at that first part of 14, it is saying, I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your daughters-in-law when they commit adultery. And we'll talk about that more in just one second. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes and people without understanding shall come to ruin. So at first reading, it might seem that verse 14 is saying here that if the leadership is bad, then you can't hold the people who are following that bad leadership responsible for their sins because they're just doing what they were led to do. Since they didn't know better, they won't experience any punishment. That seems like maybe what it's saying at first glance. But we know from Scripture, friends, that that isn't the case. When we, when we think about the truth of God revealed to us, we need to look at the full counsel of Scripture. And while leaders are judged with more weight because of their influential role, each person is responsible for their own sin, aren't they? Deuteronomy 24.16 says this very plainly to us. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. So the burden of guilt for breaking God's law, we earn that for ourselves. I'm, I'm not going to suffer anything from something that somebody else has done, nor will anybody else suffer the condemnation of sin because of what I have done. Every one of us carries our own burden of condemnation for sin apart from Christ. So ignorance of law is not an alternative way for people to get out of judgments. So, so if that's the case, then what is verse 14 actually saying? Well, we need to acknowledge that verse 14 first is still keeping the priesthood in mind here. It says that the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes. And that's a serious offense. It indicates that they were participating in the pagan rituals of false gods that still persisted within the borders, the borders and boundaries of the northern kingdom, the syncretism that we mentioned earlier. But when it says the men themselves, the priests are specifically the men that Hosea has in mind. Remember back in verse 4, uh, earlier in this very chapter, Hosea said, Yet let no one contend, let no one accuse, for with you is my contention, O priests." So for the rest of this chapter, he's specifically looking at the priests and then sometimes broadening the scope to apply to the rest of Israel as well. But here in this passage, he's speaking of the priests. 
and, and the reason why that's important is because finally we need to see that there's a specific historical reason why Hosea declares on behalf of the Lord that the daughters and daughters-in-law will not be punished. Hosea is dealing with a legal instruction that had been given in the book of Leviticus, a law initially provided to protect the integrity of God's priesthood. So in Leviticus chapter 21, verse 9, as part of the, the Torah, the law of God, as part of the instruction on how the people of God were to worship, it says this, And the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by whoring, profanes her father, she shall be burned with fire. Okay, this is an interesting, this is an interesting precept. And the reason this law exists is because the priesthood was special to the Lord God. They had a very important role to play among the people of God. This policy in Leviticus that Hosea 4.14 points to protected the integrity of the priesthood should the daughters and daughters-in-law of the priests fall into such a heinous sin and conducted themselves in such evil ways that it began to make people lose faith in the priesthood. The priest's offspring were reflective on his ministry. And since the priest played such a critical role in bringing the knowledge of God's word to Israel, it could seriously hurt the integrity of the office if his daughters and daughters-in-law were breaking God's law by prostituting themselves out or by committing adultery against their husbands. Now, if a priest's daughter was found guilty of committing harlotry, that was considered a capital offense. She was to be put to death and she was to be burned for that as a way of cleansing the name of the priesthood. So it washed away her sins from connection to her father and the priesthood that he held. So that was Old Testament law. However, in the light of the fact that the priests in Hosea's day themselves are acting like whores, themselves are prostituting themselves out, themselves are playing around with these other gods that are not even true gods, there's no reason to protect the priesthood anymore. God is essentially saying, I'm not even going to bother to go after your daughters who are committing these sins to try to protect you because there's nothing left to protect. You have so defiled the priesthood that I will no longer stand in the way to guard you. You have committed the very same sins that I forbade in Leviticus 21.9, and so my judgment starts with you. There is a sin problem in the northern kingdom, and that sin problem has poisoned the covenant people to such a degree that their worship of Yahweh is heavily handicapped. They are worshiping man-made idols. They are consulting dead and dumb things for wisdom. They are committing sexual sin in the name of worship. They are neglecting of the word of God has rendered their efforts to honor Yahweh as essentially meaningless. Now to amplify their shame, Hosea skillfully brings Judah, the southern kingdom, back into the conversation in verse 15. He says, Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Now this is not so much a prophecy directed at the southern kingdom of Judah. It is a wake-up call to the north that points out their relatives in the south, that points out the fact that they have not yet fallen to the degree that the, the northern kingdom has fallen to. Uh, commentator Richard Caldwell writes, one way that God calls to repentance is to command and exhort the one in sin to turn from sin. But another way that God calls to repentance is to warn the ones not in sin to avoid those who are sinning. In other words, God uses separation to call for consecration. This is the process of church discipline, isn't it? When we as a church find one of our brothers and sisters who's caught up in sin, we lovingly go to them one-on-one, -on -one, privately, and we try to help them, to urge them back to obedience, and we pray that that is the case, and when it is, we rejoice. If they don't repent, we bring a brother or sister with us, and we again plead with them. If that doesn't work, we tell the church to be praying for that individual and to be urging them to be honest with God and to deal with their sin. And if there is no repentance and that person still says, I'm a part of the family of God, but I'm living in sin and I'm not ashamed of it, then at that point, after much striving and prayer, there is no choice for the people of God but to put that person out of the congregation. And I let them know, you cannot be connected to the body of Christ and be defiling the good name of Jesus over and over again. You hope that by that separation, by warning the congregation, here is one who claims Christ but is not living according to Christ's law and is not willing to repent and seek his help, by warning them of that individual, the hope is that they will see the weight of what they have done and they will finally repent. When I was in college, 
I worked as a mechanic at a small shop. We specialized in German cars and European cars. And uh, early on in my time there, I was still learning a lot. I didn't really know the right ways to work on cars necessarily. And I was in quite a hurry one day trying to catch up with a workload. And I was replacing an automatic transmission in a, in a BMW 6 Series. And I had not been careful in putting this thing back together to make sure that the torque converter and the pump that drives it were lined up just right. And so when I started to bolt that vehicle back together and I started to tighten the transmission down to the engine, it got harder and harder for me to turn the bolts as I was pushing, uh, as I was moving my ratchet. And I was too ignorant to know why, so I just kept going. And as I'm turning my ratchet, I heard a big bang! And something happened within that transmission. And I stopped what I was doing, and I knew I had made a major mistake. And I went and I got my boss, and I told him the difficulties I was having. And he said, okay, well, what you've done is you just ruined that brand new transmission that we just rebuilt for the person that we put, that, uh, put into that car for our customer. You gotta take the whole thing apart. We gotta take the torque converter out. We gotta put a new pump for the transmission fluid because you just literally snapped the shaft because you weren't taking your time. But the worst part of it all was when he called the other mechanic over right in front of me and he said, this is what Nick did today. I don't want you to ever make this mistake in my shop. And he, in detail, lined out every mistake that I had made. And I had to listen to how he said, don't be like this guy. I guarantee you that his message, his admonishment, affected me a lot more than it affected that other guy. I have never put an automatic transmission back together again without triple checking to make sure that all of those things are lined up just so, so that I won't make that mistake again. And so that's what Hosea is doing to Israel in the north right now. He's not prophesying to Judah necessarily. He's saying to them, Judah needs to look out for you because you're no longer like brothers and sisters to the, to the, to the family of God down in the south. You are so corrupt that I'm telling them to avoid you because your sin could be infectious to them. Hosea says, Judah, don't fall into the same mistakes that your sister in the north is falling into. In fact, avoid that kind of behavior altogether. He says, do not enter into Gilgal. Do not go up to Beth-Avon. Generations earlier, King Jeroboam, I've mentioned this a couple times in the past, had broken the northern ten tribes away from the southern two tribes. So Benjamin and Judah remained Judah in the south, and the ten northern tribes became known as Israel in the north. And when he broke apart from the south in order to keep his people from traveling down into the southern kingdom to worship at the temple, he created alternate worship sites. Gilgal and Bethel were two of the major centers where people were told to go and worship Yahweh, offer sacrifices on the high places there, go up underneath the terebinth trees and under the asher trees and give your sacrifices to the Lord God. You don't have to go all the way down to Jerusalem. You don't have to follow those outdated instructions. Again, this is an example of stubborn and rebellious people deciding that God's command for worship was not for them anymore, that they would worship God in their own ways and in their own places. The city of Bethel, he calls here Beth-Avon. He actually changes the name. It's a play on words. The name Bethel means house of God, and he calls it Beth-Avon, which means house of wickedness. Don't go to Gilgal. Don't go to the house of wickedness anymore. For the worship that was occurring in these two places was polluted by the practices borrowed from pagan Canaanites, and it didn't even qualify as true worship because it wasn't happening in the temple like it was commanded. So the prophet Amos, who was a contemporary of Hosea, he wrote in his, his prophecy, he says in, in Amos 4.4, and this is in a mocking tone, he says, come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. So this is a mockery of these two places. He's basically telling the people, if you go there, all you're doing is multiplying sin to yourself. And then later on in chapter 5, he says in a solemn tone, he says, for thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live. But do not seek Bethel and do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile and Bethel shall come to nothing. I, I tremble to think today, and you know, this is not exactly a, a port over to the new covenant, but we have instructions to worship today as well, don't we? And I shudder to think how many places today are calling themselves churches and the kind of offerings they're bringing to God every Sunday morning 
look nothing like what he has called us to do in the New Testament. They don't look anything like the humble, reverent, Christ-centered, Jesus-exalting worship that we're commanded to give in the New Testament. Do you see how seriously God takes his worship? The northern kingdom was proud of these cities, but Yahweh sees them as a mockery of the truth. And he considers them emblematic of the rebellious worship that the northern kingdom was consistently offering to God. Say not, as the Lord lives, warns Hosea. In other words, he's telling Judah, don't fall into the same pattern that Israel has fallen into, where you say, oh yes, we'll be the covenant people of God. We'll hold to your scriptures and then ignore them and do what you want to do. They were utterly breaking their promises to God. Though God has called them into fellowship with him, that he might be their shepherd and provide for their needs, the fact that the northern kingdom is acting in such an openly rebellious way has made it necessary to treat this people not like lambs that need nurture and protection, but as stubborn heifers. They need to have a sterner rebuke and a harsher direction in order for them to do what they're supposed to do. Their lack of faith has caused them to distrust God's commands for worship, and now their worship is a stench to that God. They must receive rebuke. And we see just how harsh the rebuke needs to be when we get to verse 17. Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. Leave him alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings. They shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. The words we really need to focus on here are those three words. Leave him alone. The great majority of those in the north have come to love their sins so much that it has swept them away in a current of temptation. It has so permeated their being that when they have exhausted one avenue of sin, they simply jump right into a new avenue of sin and break the law of God in different creative ways. This rebelliousness has had such far-reaching consequences that even what passes for worship in the north is oozing with evidence of their rebellious hearts. They have dishonored the covenant. They have committed adultery against Yahweh by joining themselves with other false gods. And now the verdict is summed up in three haunting words of judgment. Leave him alone. There is almost a warning of Judah to quarantine from Israel here. We have a little bit of familiarity with that right now, don't we? Yahweh has walked away from the northern kingdom of Israel because they are so toxic. And now Judah needs to do the same. They need to cut themselves off from those people. Leave them because I have left them, says Yahweh. I cannot help but think of Romans 1 here, where it says in verses 24 through 25, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served a creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. After much patience and long suffering, the Lord is declaring a separation from those in the north. He's leaving them alone. If, you, if what you want is to be free from the leadership of God, if what you really desire in your heart is to be disconnected from his authority and to be free, free to do what you desire to do and not under the, the, you know, the oppressive commandments of God, then God will oblige you. He will give that to you for a while and to a degree. But it is the heaviest punishment imaginable when he does that. I'm not speaking to Christians here. If you have been made alive in Christ, then you cannot imagine a life without Jesus. He is your everything now. You would never choose to leave him. And he has promised to never leave you or forsake you. But to those who see God's rule as burdensome, as cumbersome, to those who would rather be apart from God and independent on their own, I ask this question. Do you know, O oh sinner, what it means to be left alone by the living God? Do you know what it means? Not supplied with his love and grace. Not protected by his mighty right hand. Not the beneficiary of his inheritance. Not a citizen of his kingdom or a partaker of his promises. Do you know what that means? Do you know what you're asking for when you want to be free from the living God? Sinner, you do not yet know. You do not yet know the extent of what you are asking for. Even the worst of sinners does not yet know what it is like to be utterly left alone by God. 
For God's common grace is still on, on an undeserved benefit of all who walk in this world. The rain falls on both the sinner and the saint, doesn't it? The beauties of this world still are a sight to behold whether you trust in God or not. And that stands true for now, but not forever. There will be a moment in time for each and every soul when we will come before God and our sin will be exposed before Him. We will be naked before Him. Our law-breaking, we will not be able to hide. And in that moment, if we are not found to be wrapped in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, then the dark reality of those three heavy words will be revealed to us. God will once and forever turn away and leave you alone to the punishment that you have earned for your sin. Do you know, O oh sinner, what it means to be left alone by the living God? Jesus knows. The Son of God knows what that is like. In Mark 15, verses 33 through 39, we read about what is sometimes called the cry of dereliction. We hear it from the cross. In verse 33, it says, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma shabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it in a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah comes to take him away. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Having, born, having been born into the sin of Adam, Every one of us deserves to hear those three words that the prophet Hosea declared to the northern kingdom. Leave him alone. We have broken the law of God to a degree we can't even imagine. This God who is holy and good and perfect and true and loving, we have spit in his face with our disobedience. And yet that God who should put us to shame has chosen in his mercy to save many of us. Every one of us deserves to be forsaken by the Father, separated from love and grace that only God can give. But it pleased God to keep some of us from experiencing that horrific fate. And in order to accomplish that, he had to experience it himself. Christ suffered this, leave him alone in our place. When Christ experienced the punishment of our sin on the cross, he satisfied the debt that the elect owed to God. But being that he himself is God in the flesh, Jesus could not be defeated by death. He's eternal. He's immortal. Nor could he be utterly separated from the Father and the Spirit, for this is one triune God that we are talking about. Having paid the price for our sin, Jesus triumphs over death as well, when according to his scripture, he rose again on the third day. And upon establishing and commissioning the church, Christ returned to be seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. But before all of that glory happened, he had to experience what we should experience. He experienced the leave him alone. He became sin so that we who are sinful would not be judged for our sinfulness. Isn't that not an amazing fact? Joshua Moon writes in his commentary on Hosea, Jesus did not ascend to heaven as the God forsaken but as the one vindicated by the giver of life. Every human being, friends, will worship something. We were designed to worship, and we cannot help it. You will worship Yahweh, or you will worship something far less worthy of worship than Yahweh is. J.K.A. Smith writes, The renewal of the church and the Christian university, a renewal of both Christian worship and Christian education hinges on an understanding of human beings as liturgical animals, he calls them. Creatures who can't not worship and who are fundamentally formed by worship practices. The reason such liturgies are so formative is precisely because it is these liturgies, whether Christian or quote-unquote secular, that shape what we love. And we are what we love. Liturgy refers to the patterns of worship that people use to give glory to God or to try to honor him. 
And the patterns in the northern kingdom were so corrupt that they gave no honor to God anymore. We will worship something. It is my hope and my prayer that we will see the goodness of what God has done. That though he, in necessity, separated himself from a wicked northern kingdom, that he did not forget his covenant people. That he strove with them. And though even Judah had had to go through a time where their blessings were stripped away from them, he strove with them. And the promise that there would be a king in the line of David from David's seed who would come and who would take the throne and who would never be displaced from that throne were fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. We go back briefly to, to Mark 15. Jesus has cried out. Those who were mockers tried to get him to say more. They waited around. And when Elijah didn't come, they left with their heads hanging low. They didn't get their entertainment, their show. But somebody else responded differently to what he saw. Verse 39, and when the centurion, one of those guards who had struck Jesus, no doubt, spit in his face, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Our hope and our prayer is that if you have not made that, that observation yet, if, if the Lord has not woken your heart to that fact, that he would do it today. If you are seeing today for the first time that you need Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you, like Israel, have done your own thing when it came to worship. You've worshiped the wrong things in the wrong places for the wrong motives. And you know today that you need the direction of Jesus Christ. I urge you, trust in the Lord. For he is happy to save. He has a people that he is set aside, setting aside for himself that will worship him forever. And it is my hope and prayer that you will be numbered among them through faith in Jesus Christ. God, we praise you and thank you for being good. And we ask that today, as your word settles into our hearts and minds, that we would not just check the worship requirement off our list and go about our secular way. Lord, let these things resonate in our hearts and minds, even as we stay around afterwards and talk as brothers and sisters in Christ, as neighbors, Lord, that you would help us to think and discuss these things, that we would encourage one another in the things that we've learned today or other things that we've learned throughout this week. Mighty God, you are good to save us, and you don't stop there. You are good to refine us. You are good to mature us. You are good to call our sin out and to chastise us because we're your boys, we're your girls, Lord. We're precious to you. So continue to do that mighty work of refining us so that we might walk like Christ walks. That gift comes only from you and from nowhere else. So may you be glorified today in our simple obedience. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.